0: pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at (laughs) filmcomment.com.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. An inspiring development during the pandemic has been watching people pull together to help one another out, and especially those hit hardest. One such effort was the Cinema Worker Solidarity Fund, which raised nearly $80,000 in 10 days for out-of-work movie theater employees. For our latest edition of the Film Comment Podcast at home, We caught up with Programmer Critics Ed Halter and Nellie Killian who spearheaded the Cinema Worker Solidarity Fund alongside Thomas Beard and filmmaker Sierra Pettengill. Halter, a critic in residence at Bard College, is also co-curator of Light Industry with Thomas Beard and Killian is a contributing editor of Film Comment as well. Halter and Killian last appeared together on an incredible podcast talking about Projections, the experimental film slate of the New York Film Festival. This time, we talked about the effects of the crisis on how we are watching movies, what we've been watching, and the interesting overlaps between our ultra-mediated existence and experimental cinema. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rupold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another in our daily or semi-daily edition of the Film Comment Podcast at home, where we... Don't leave our houses because we can't or won't or shouldn't. And we talk about the view from where we're sitting and what we've been watching to keep ourselves distracted. So we've been trying to have different people each day uh, to give us a different view on things each day. And today um, I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, first Nellie. Hello, Nellie.
2: Hi, uh, Nellie Killian. I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment and a programmer.
1: And...
3: Uh, Ed Halter, I'm one of the directors of Light Industry, and I'm a, a critic and professor.
1: You know, we've looked at how things have been affected in, you know, theatrical releases or film criticism. What do you, what are you people writing about? Um, we've also just talked about how people are succumbing to more TV than than before, discovering new things or going back to the same films, but. It could be interesting just to look at a particular subsection of the film world, and that would be experimental cinema. Um, I don't know where you'd like to, to start with that, but uh, whoever would like to start, how do you find, how do you think it's it's affecting um, filmmakers? Are, are, are people extra productive because they're cooped up or is it a kind of um, a, a numbing ex- experience, do you think?
3: Well, that's an interesting way to ask it. I mean, I I personally have heard nobody tell me that they are being overproductive at this point. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm sure somebody out there is for no doubt, but I just personally, no filmmakers I've talked to about that have said that to me right now. It seems the opposite. The people seem to be like on pause with everything. There was was this um, kind of organization Bradley was trying to, was getting going before this uh, called the Mushroom Collective, where he uh, was trying to connect uh, private film, co- people have small private film collections of 16 millimeter prints or super eight prints uh, just to share the, their, their basically their lists with one another uh, so that if somebody were doing a show, they would know that someone so-and-so has a print of this or that. Uh, and then maybe filmmakers might have found footage and so forth. It was a kind of like thing he was trying to get going. So he decided to do a Mushroom Collective event on Zoom on April 1st at midnight. Uh, and invited people who had collections to project film in their apartment, if they could, or otherwise do some sort of like projection in the uh, uh, apartment. Uh, and then all the people were collected on on connected on uh, Zoom. I was invited, and I fell asleep at nine p.m. and <laughs> did not go. I did get footage of it the next day from a few people, like Lynn Sachs was there, and. Uh, uh, she she did some, but it looked very fun. But I thought that was a great idea, and it would seem like people just liked having a a way to connect with each other. You know,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the effect was that like a kind of mosaic. If you looked at it on the screen, exactly, or was exactly.
3: It? it was like a big right. moving kind of mosaic of different images. Yeah, yeah, oh, somewhat exactly. randomly created, semi random. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, before yeah. we move on to some of the maybe more institutional. um sort of streaming platforms, Sierra Pettengill also um, for her birth, the filmmaker, Sierra Pettengill for her birthday, um, tried to recreate um, the Lamont Young dream house. And so <laughs> she had um, downloaded video and an audio file um, and, mm-hmm. you know, got everyone together. And basically we all just um, pressed play on our video file and audio at the same time. And, you could see in all the boxes, all of our different screens sort of together um, people's different, like sort of home viewing setups, which was kind of nice. Uh, collective hmm. experience. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause she'd originally wanted yeah. to go to the physical dream house for her birthday. So this, this was an approximation. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it does seem that there's a, an urge to, to, to dis- discover some form for, for there to be a collective. Uh, I mean, I keep hoping that, there'll be some way to like project on the side of a building or something like that, that people in the neighborhood could see. I don't know if anyone's trying that yet.
2: Yeah. There was a, um, there is a, a scene like that. There's a video from a, a documentary filmmaker. I'm forgetting her name, but she made a, a short documentary for the New Yorker that was, um, all shot in Rome during this lockdown. And, um, I mean I think we've all probably seen the images of the eerily empty streets of Rome. Um and there was mm. one scene where um I believe a Shelby dance was projected on the side of a building and then you could see the people in their windows some of them were dancing. while well, like, other people oh. across were watching. <laughs> I don't know, it was it was kind of moving. <laughs> um, yeah. the video yeah. is quite good. Um I Moscarpelli is the name of the filmmaker. She had a beautiful oh, okay. care. Oh. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Wait, just going back quickly to the Dreamhouse, I just realized that some listeners might not know what, what the what the, what the Lamont Young's Dreamhouse is.
2: I, I mean, it's a long running installation in downtown New York that's a sort of sound and light environment. It's an immersive experience. It's sort of about being in the space and all of that. And that is something that you can't really, you know, recreate in your home. Um, you definitely can't um, recreate it as a communal experience in the same way. Because Sierra had set it up that we were all sort of uh, in the dark, lying on the ground, the sort of pink and purple light of the video installation and this, again, very ambient um, audio, uh, it did kind of, you know, there was something about it that did feel um, communal. Um, And I think also the fact that everyone was sort of game to try it was Mm -hmm. uh, a nice communal experience, if again, very different than actually being in a place with the kind of history that the dream house has, you know? Yeah. I mean,
1: it's, well, it's definitely made me think about what, what makes something feel communal or what, what feels like a connection. Uh, I mean, you know, it's strange to think about it in a historical way, but a telephone call, for example, and the way one is present in that and the connection that that can feel and the space you kind of project yourself or imagine yourself in when you're in like a, you know, hour long conversation with someone, you, you can realize that you can have this kind of imaginative space that opens out, even in something as 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 linear and, and analog as 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 a telephone call. in, in a way, um, so I, I yeah, it's interesting to see how this plays out with you know the the different other channels and, and and media that are available to us now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it ends up being very different than I mean, like the just norms are so different. Um, I know that. Uh, Spectacle has been doing um, a series of uh, several times a week Twitch streams, which um, if people aren't familiar with Twitch, it's a broadcasting platform that sort of is famous for uh, the way that gamers use it, but um, also has a lot of possibility for any type of broadcast. And um, a lot of people have been using it to sort of host uh, almost like a evening uh, television channel. Uh, where you can all tune in at eight o'clock and watch a live stream. And if you're late, like it's not, uh, again, it's not a Vimeo or anything like that, where you can watch from the beginning, you just pick up where everyone else is. But um, one of the sort of features of Twitch is that it has a a chat panel in the side. So um, again, I I think most people wouldn't want to be chatting during the movie, but uh, in a normal situation, but in this case, it does, you're watching a movie with friends, it's more like watching in a living room than watching, well, you are in your living room or bedroom or whatever, but um, it does kind of create that different, sort of more casual viewing uh, than there would be at the theater, and I think the chat ends up being this kind of fun way for people to interact while they're watching. Um, In the case of spectacle, they're showing a lot of things that um, they've shown several times in the theater, so I think a lot of the people who are watching are probably familiar with the work, which is also a different thing, but uh, they showed Zach and uh, Adam Cleal's Empty Metal. Um, and the, I think on Friday, they're going to show um, Soda Jerk's uh, a Soda Jerk movie. Uh, the name is Escaping Me. But um, yeah, it's interesting. It does feel like a community um in that chat stream in a different way. I think maybe just because everyone's doing the same thing at the same time.
1: Well, it's also an interesting reaction to the kind of monolithic quality of, of television, which is pegged to a certain time and, and, and uh, but is, is not, is not kind of homegrown in that, in that way or organized in that way.
2: I mean, aside from sports, I, I don't think that people are really um, connected to the time things broadcast in the way that they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So this is kind of a return right. to that. I mean, I think in part just because people are looking for ways to structure their days. I mean, even <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like I'm constantly like, what time is it? How did that happen?
3: What, what Nelly was saying before that uh, the spectacle events seem to be things that spectacle has shown already. I mean, this, uh, I think it also is that, that people, uh, I don't know, it reminds me a bit of like, there's certain bars that are hosting like events where people who go to the bar together are just getting, uh, on Zoom and then like having a drink together, and to me, yeah. I'm just like it's more for the community than it is to actually see anything, particularly online. Because I mean, the thing is, it is it is a highly unsatisfying way to watch watch anything.
2: I don't think it has to be, you know. I mean, I have watched you can watch it without uh, like participating yeah, in any Yeah, I mean, the extra I guess I'm stuff, saying it's, it's it not. Is there. It's not. You're more there. It's for not the a replacement aspect. for the
3: cinema experience. Obviously, it is its own different kind of experience. You know. Um, and a lot of that experience is just, is, is that social aspect, but I don't know, you know, this, this semester I was teaching a class or have been teaching a class on the films of Andy Warhol up at Bard. And of course we just, you know, that just got super interrupted. But up until now we were watching 16 millimeter prints every week of Warhol movies, which was itself kind of really interesting because I'm showing them to a generation of students for whom, you know, uh, 16 millimeter projection is something highly antique, you know, um, Mm-hmm. And unusual. Um, and so we talked a lot about that and we did things like when we shut, when we watched part of empire, we actually, uh, encouraged ourselves to just talk during the movie because we read accounts that that's how people watched it. So we tried that and said, well, what's that like, you know? So when we had to move the class online, all of a sudden it's like, well, what are we going to do? I, like the whole class was built around prints that specifically were not, uh, were not available any other way. Um, so we just basically have done, we're now doing a, a Warhol bootleg class, and it's all about whatever's available through uh, Decent Bootlegs. Um, uh, but, but so one thing we did was we, we were going to do Chelsea Girls. So we did a Chelsea Girls uh, private tw- Twitch stream with just the class, like 12 people, and also did that kind of thing. And it was interesting because people did, it wasn't just that people wanted to chat on the actual chat function, but people were also, there was a lot of side chatting where people were like texting one another, or like on other, some other medium. And it, hmm. it, it felt like, I mean, it was a decent way to see Chelsea girls. It's certainly not an optimal way to see Chelsea girls, but it was, <laughs> but it wasn't, it, it was not uninteresting. That's the thing. It was definitely an interesting novelty to, to, to try to watch something like that, that way. And a lot, you know, we were saying that like the, the social aspect of it was probably not unlike the social aspect of a lot of Warhol films anyway, in terms of how people would act in the theater originally.
1: Right. And wait, how did you, how, how was the like triple s- s projection aspect of it?
3: The double projection was from, it was of a. Double,
1: double, yeah.
3: There is an Italian uh, uh, gray market uh, d- DVD release of Chelsea Girls from like a decade ago where they created a, a single channel composite of two, two, pr- two screens.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, if you did have all of the individual reels somehow files uh you could create like a multi-screen experience
3: <laughs> as you said people have time on their hands
2: yes, some it of also yeah. is kind of needlessly complicated
1: well then if, um, and, and then if yeah. anyone in class for some reason dozes off during the screening uh, you can then make everyone yeah. watch him and then they're watching sleep
3: oh yeah true that could
1: happen um sorry that was a dumb joke um <laughs> Um, but um, I guess just to go back to uh, Nellie, you were, you were talking about institutional effects um, for people. Were you talking about in terms of how, um, you know, filmmakers are, are, are funded or, or...
2: I was thinking that like something like Spectacle or Screen Slate's putting together a, um, a streaming thing as well, that uh, these smaller organizations can do sort of like smaller level... Streams, But what you're seeing in a lot of larger institutions and closed art house theaters is um, sort of VOD models where um, the theater is partnered with uh, the distributor. So, um, again, you know, the the foggy line of what's experimental, but that's the way um, uh, Tomas Heise's Heimat is a Space and Time is currently showing um, in <laughs> collaboration between Anthology Film Archives and Icarus. Uh, Vitalina Varela, I believe, is showing with um, Grasshopper and Film Society, or Film at Lincoln Center and BAM, um, and also theaters all around the country that I'm less familiar with, um, that there is has been this way of trying to think. I think that distributors are um, concerned, obviously, about the health of the network of movie theaters that they depend on and um they want, you know, to do a VOD release, they want that money to also be supporting um what they'll need when we come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um so that's I think what I was referring to with institutional uh the more institutional streaming things that are happening. But in terms of Ava, one thing I was just thinking about when we were uh mm-hmm. when I knew this was gonna be the topic for today is just the fragility of so many DIY spaces. And um, artist spaces that support avant-garde work—that um, this is going to be very difficult, I think, um, for a lot of places that have been kind of on the edge, you know, or you know, live on the edge. Uh, are,
1: are they helped mm-hmm. at all by the availability of of grants? Or uh...
2: I'm sure, I'm sure to a certain extent, but um, I mean, I think Ed can speak to this too, as someone who runs a space. Uh, I do think there's also a question of momentum too that i think that you know a lot of especially really small diy things kind of run on the momentum of everyone being involved uh you know that it is kind of hard to get it going again if you have to stop um the disruption i think is just really difficult especially in places where people you know lose their job and then now if they're looking for a job when we come out of this like the diy space is definitely going to be secondary um, I think for just really small places, it's going to be really difficult.
1: Uh, yeah, Ed, do you see that kind of um, fear, apprehension of of getting people back together again, literally, and in, in the habit of of going out? There's there's this inherent tension with some of these streaming yeah. endeavors that <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, you're yeah. kind of cutting into your own bottom line, you know, in, a, in a, you know your um, your own audience's habits.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I look at it is that it's true i mean the bigger to me there's a bigger question which is that none of us know exactly how long any kind of pause in our operations is going to last uh and so we can't really even plan for that pause properly um and but what's interesting about that is that like we can talk about the the effect that has on a small space like light industry sure but the fact is is that this is something that organizations from The tiniest to the biggest are all having to deal with because it's nothing that anybody is used to doing, just putting everything on hold for like an interminable amount of time, right? So, the bigger question of like what it means to come out of this after something that's so, so fundamentally traumatic to the way that we do things is something that I'm more thinking of. I don't really know. I mean, the thing is, it's such an unknown. What's on the other side of that at this point? So, like, I've been going down, you know, once a week walking down the street to Light Industry to like check the mail or whatever. And we still have the seats set up and the, the, the screen there and everything from the last show um, as is. And it's just so strange because, like, it's one thing to know that you have to take a break, it's another thing to have no idea how long that break is going to be and whether on the other side of that break, uh, people will still be able to say even go to a cinema at all you know like will people will how long will it be till people can feel safe about going into uh, a small room of people and sitting down with like a hundred people in a room uh i just don't know it's hard to, it's really hard to tell so like it's it's like it's a bigger existential question than even the question of like can we pay our rent for three or four months which is also already its own kind of crazy Insane question. It's a bigger question of like, will any of this be available to any of us for any amount of time in the next, I don't know, two years, three? So I don't know. It's a really difficult question to answer, is what I'm saying. It's beyond yeah. like, um, it's beyond like an economic downturn or something, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's 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 a question of yeah. What it almost ends up being a question of what level of. Of comfort, discomfort or risk are we going to have to assume in order to resume, you know, all all the group activities, public activities that that we did without thinking before.
3: But but this gets to some fundamental things like that. We don't usually have to think about, like real estate and our landlords and whether we're going to be paying rent or not. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, we have to it's like way beyond the questions we usually have to ask about. Survival for in the arts or something, you know.
2: I think also, I mean, a lot of the the industries that are um, a lot of the jobs that I think a lot of artists do um, are ones that I think are just being really hard hit. Like uh, it was recently announced that MoMA is laying off all of their educators, um, and uh, doesn't know when they'll be able to get that up and running again. Um, I've read a lot of universities are having to cut back on adjuncts and um, change work things around um, because of the uncertainty about next year.
3: Anybody in production is not, no one is in production. So anybody that
2: that works in
3: production, there's zero happening and zero on the docket to, to come. That's really crazy. So yeah, the impact on, I mean, it's just like, yeah. And plus the art world, there's no, you know, nobody's, nobody's assisting, uh, no one has to help mount any shows. There's no show right. to, to uh, assist on.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. I think it, it's just like a lot of these things that are sort of secondary, yeah. but are the ways that a lot of people earn their money, I think are things that are going to be really slow to recover.
1: So, I mean, is it, are we looking at a, at a reality like that in a year of, of just, <laughs> there's nothing out out there to see or in a way just because everyone is in in a pretty terrible state, just kind of struggling to stay above water.
3: Well, I, I would be shocked if somebody, well, well, obviously people will become inventive after time. We're only, we're not even a month into it, you know, Hmm. like definitely more people will become more inventive over time and do something, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, making work on the, in isolation. That's for sure. Um,
2: I think also, I mean, it is interesting to think um, with large, you know, film festivals being canceled. I think there's even uncertainty about fall film festivals Um, for experimental film, especially like, you know, where you're premiering it at like Cannes or New York Film Festival or whatever is like, there's sort of a life cycle to it um, that I think is maybe going to be reset by this too. I mean, if they're, It will be as if like a if if there aren't any big festivals until next spring again, I mean, it will feel like there is just kind of a reset. Well,
3: The the feeling of there being a robust Mm -hmm. circuit for experimental film was already waning year by year, I have to say, like this past year, Mm -hmm. it felt it definitely felt like the circle was smaller than ever. Don't you think? Like it just wasn't. Uh, there weren't that many venues that were that were showing contemporary, uh, uh, contemporary, uh, contemporary experimental work.
2: I do feel like a lot of people are putting their work on Vimeo, um, which is interesting. Uh, there's a a list on Hyperallergic actually of um, you know dozens of artists that have just uploaded uh, past work and you know made it free for people to watch, which is kind of incredible because i i do think even in the best of times it can be sort of uh difficult i think outside of big cities to see a lot of this stuff but um all of skyho pinka's stuff is online uh alexander cuesta um i'm just like looking through a long list. Danya Khan put some things on life. Adam and Zach Khalil put um, a Nazi.
1: What do you think is the thinking or the feeling that's going into that decision for individual filmmakers?
2: Well, I think it's a sense I, of sharing. They
3: want to share their work. You know, they feel like people are isolated and they want to connect with people through their work and, and they think it would be something that people would like. And I think they do. I think people do like it. I definitely yeah, yeah, I mean, partook of it. Yeah.
2: I saw a lot of um you know people that I'm friends with on social media that are doing this, you know, and it did seem like they were like, Oh, like it's so nice to have Jody Max work online, like I going to put mine up too. I hope someone enjoys it yeah um and you know and because they're f- experimental filmmakers for the most part, it's not as if they're they've sold the rights of their film to whoever who sold it to Criterion Channel or whatever, like you know they're pretty much in control and can do that,
1: right, yeah um yeah. i'm i was just wondering you know it's so hard to speculate about what's what things are going to be like and, and no one knows what's on the other side but i just to look at the past I'm, I'm curious are there any are there are there any previous periods in in you know film history that come to mind where people are encountering these complete just cataclysmic situations i mean like world war ii i guess you could argue it ended up giving Giving, giving birth in a way to neorealism or, or in some way? I mean, are, are there any analogs at all for, for past ways that filmmakers have become inventive or have, have persevered, been able to survive?
3: Well, the lack of a, ability to gather publicly is the real question. I mean, for me, it's, it's parallel to the question of what religion has faced now you know, because by definition, every, you know, the Catholic church or various other, every, the the congregation is really at the heart of, of actually being part of a religion. And so like, this is Holy Week right now. And Catholic churches are closed. uh, Synagogues are closed. Like you can't do, uh, you can't have a Seder together. You know, it's like, um, these are really fundamental things that have never in history, like that anyone can ever remember, like, anyone could ever point to being unable to do these very, very basic things, right? And so going to the cinema or going to the theater in general or gathering together like at a restaurant, those are things that I can't think of any time that even under the worst times, going to church, going to a rest, you know, get get gatherings as such of some sort could have happened. But to have them entirely not happening is, I can't think of any precedent for that.
0: Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film, Heimat is a Space and Time, Michael Koreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.
1: I mean, I, I almost wonder what this would have been like if it happened 15 years from now when, you know, I presume, you know, VR and and, and people connecting in in that kind of more immersive medium is just more a fact of life, what it would have been like then.
3: Well, I think it's more interesting that we're already in immersive media that allows us to do it to begin with. How could this have happened in 1995? How could this, you know, how could this have happened in 1985? Like, uh, you couldn't imagine doing what we're doing now. We would obviously have had to done it very differently. So I think about that a lot, that it's actually, people talk about the internet saving us, but I actually think the internet is what allowed us to do this at all. Without it, it would absolutely be impossible.
1: Right,
2: yeah. I I would actually be very interested if there's a silent film historian that can talk about the effect of the Spanish flu on sort of the early film-going culture. Um. Because you know, 1918, it's like things are kind of getting rolling, but it must have been hugely disruptive to what was, you know, uh, still somewhat fledgling um, pastime.
1: Yeah, they. I mean, I I looked up a few. There's there's a there's a good influenza, uh, influenza site. Um, where they they post a, a bunch of old newspaper clippings and, um, you know, sort of local newspapers being very celebratory when the theaters are reopening and, and people seemingly just kind of going right back at it. I mean, I don't know if that's just also a difference in terms of, you know, awareness about public health is- issues um, or, or what, um, I don't know.
3: I also wonder, I was watching on CNN, there was a little report about, <laughs> do you know that they they're having to send law enforcement to break up underground churches right now, because there are some religions, yes. some grouped congregations of certain religions that are so intent on it. They're like, I don't, I don't care. We're doing it. And, uh, there was this one with this Christian church and they interviewed a woman. And was like, why are you doing this? And she's like, I'm protected. I'm believe I'm bathed in the blood of Jesus, you know? And I, I was thinking, well, Who loves cinema that much? Who's going to be? Who's going to be the (laughs) one? Who will be the ones holding the uh, illegal underground cinema uh, 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 against? Like, what kind of cinephile will be doing that? Is the question.
1: (laughs) I am bathed in the light of the projector. I shall not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had just one more. One more. Question. I mean, I, I think my initial, my kind of opening gambit would probably sound kind of dumb, but I guess, but you know, about whether filmmakers are doing more. But it probably came from the idea that a number of filmmakers might be trying out diaristic forms at this stage, or is that is that just too too obvious a, a move? And or, um, I don't
0: know.
2: I am I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, it what uh, it's inevitable that a lot of work will come out of this time just because uh I mean artists make art. Um <laughs> uh I think that everyone's been very distracted, but I, I would imagine that people are thinking about things to to do. And, you know, and a lot of people's practices are like fairly um domestic or homebound yeah. anyway. So like I mean I imagine there's a lot of people, especially in experimental film, who can continue to animate or, you know, whatever it is that um you know, continue to make diaristic work or whatever it is. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that like uh, for me, just generally I feel like my life is just so boring right now Um, that that, you know, I'm reading more and watching more movies, but um, there is so little to, to really do. Um, I I imagine that'll, that's a sort of an inspiration problem. I mean, it's true. I
3: can think of some, especially people who do, like, handmade film. I think of, like, the way uh, Luther Price works or whatever. They're already working in this kind of hermit way that they're already post-apocalypse, like, people working with film (laughs) because they've had to deal with, like, (laughs) there's no labs, there's no anything. So, like, I feel like anyone who's that hardcore and is already into that, that will obviously – that has its own infrastructure that will somehow keep going. I mean, I have heard about – like i know photo um a community photo labs are doing uh some like contactless drop off for example so i'd imagine that mm-hmm. like uh, eventually people could keep community uh artists running film labs going not so you know so disruptively if you could figure out a way to do that um right. so so i can imagine working on home in that way would way- And I could also imagine found footage, essay film, those kinds of things, which people work on, working on, you know, editing older footage, going back and looking at older work. That's all something that can be very productive for people, you know, the um, uh, revisiting that pile of footage that you haven't really looked at because it's, you know, you're here at home with it. So I could imagine that, you know, as time goes on, it could birth a lot of things. But I think you're right. right, that we are going to see a lot of diary films. I actually think it's interesting to see how television has been trying to grapple with the aesthetic right now, because they seem to be totally at a loss of how to deal with it. Um, Where you see, like, you'll watch like the view and like everybody's dialing in from their apartments and stuff. Or like.
2: I watched Roy Behar knock her camera over the other day. It's crazy.
3: Did you see? Um, Yeah. Maybe the most bizarre one was the Bill Maher show. Like uh, it just was so strange. It was like. It was him in his backyard with this uh, very odd camera that, that seemed to have a low frame rate for some reason, or it was not transmitted well. <laughs> and then everyone else was kind of like, you know, FaceTiming in from their apartments. And you see, it was just very... I, I got to say, it's like, we think we want reality on TV, but we really don't. Like, I, I don't, I, I like, that's what I look at my, on my computer. If I turn on TV, I want to see it. I want to see something like a set or something, like, give me something. Like, this right. looks like now I'm chatting with my friends and they're just, yeah, it's weird. And also makeup. They're all doing their own makeup. And that's quite interesting.
2: Like I also... I feel like a lot of the decisions people are making, um, you know, people who are on national yeah. television about like how they situate themselves is like almost avant-garde. The weirdest one to yeah. me is that I could be wrong, but it appears that the setup that Joe Biden spent, however long setting up in his home, is that he stands in front of a green screen that has, is projecting an image of his own living room, yeah. which seems like, There's just, like, why not just be in the living room? I guess the lighting was bad there, but this looks, like, totally bizarre.
3: I don't know. I think think Um, it was avant-garde. I think it was ahead of its time because now that's what people look like in their Zoom meetings, you know? So Biden was really – he really did see where it was all going.
1: The first time in recent memory ahead of his time. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm the guy. I'm the guy who had the projection of his living room.
2: Yeah. And I could be wrong, but that's what it looks like. And I'm just oh, like, I don't God. understand why he did this.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, that's that's yeah. That's become a hobby in in my uh, household. We it was just, it, I mean, I hardly even hearing what people are saying if we're watching like PBS NewsHour because all the correspondents, you're immediately looking what's going on behind them. And one guy regularly has these two cats that are sleeping on a couch yeah. to his left. Um. So
2: I saw a thing the other day where one of the news people just for whatever reason filmed it. He was like leaning over the counter of his kitchen. <laughs> Like, everyone else was, like, in a normal, like, you know, whatever, square setup of, you know, their, you know, top of their torso or whatever. And he's, like, leaning over, like, a marble kitchen island. And I was just like, why did you do, why? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you must have really thought this was a good idea because it's not the way everyone else was doing it.
3: I did see a clever thing a local news thing did where they the the newscasters were in their own separate homes but they were supposed to be like you know side by side on on the you know as if they were on the desk together so what they did was they each got the logo of the thing and got it on their own televisions at home and put their televisions behind them so like it actually was like choreographed quite nice but it was like really (laughs) funny because it was like it obviously also just their their apartments (laughs) yeah
1: yeah. Well it, it's and, and um yeah and another I mean,
3: uh, Kuchar territory, you know, <laughs> by necessity. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then also just the the video, the kind of lower res quality of it all, it can can be somewhat jarring, you know, because they are Skyping in sometimes and you you have the quality you might be more accustomed to seeing on like a, you know, community access programming show. And also the the, the sometimes jarring shifts between the different qualities. If you have like three or four correspondents, they're clicking between um, that sort of is also, I've also been finding kind of interesting to watch, where just everyone's sort of essentially, in a in an individual sense, in in permanent semi-casual mode yeah. or, or like casual.
3: We haven't even talked about what's going to happen to people's hair as this goes on. <laughs> oh yeah, it's,
1: yes, it's the coming the coming storm. <laughs>
3: it's true. It's true. <laughs> you makeup was a problem. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um,
2: well, I've seen a lot of people like doing um, extreme die jobs, which I guess is a way to distract from, yeah, maybe a, a grow out that you're not going to be happy. Yeah, with. I definitely
3: have seen some emotional die jobs. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, we you know we all we all react in our, our own ways. Um, well, maybe we can maybe we can sort of um, wrap up just by talking about uh, what what you've been watching, uh, um, you know, whatever has been distracting have you been finding that you're seeking out new or or random things or or returning to things that you know are going to be kind of reliable
2: i mean i've been doing definitely a little bit of both i'm like looking at the list of what i watched so far this month and it's only angels have wings and breakdown with kurt russell uh crossing the lancy forrest gump (laughs) Uh, so definitely some old favorites or things I've been meaning to revisit in the case of Forrest Gump. Uh, but I also have a, um, I have a zoom group, uh, that meets once a week and, um, we've been watching long things that all of us have, you know, meant to watch and never got around to. So I watched Shoah for the first time over the last two weeks and now I'm watching Eyes on the Prize. Um, and we talk about it in our weekly, like we all watch, you know, five hours or whatever, and then, uh, get together and talk about the movie, which has been actually really great. Like to have that, um, I guess like have the deadline of the conversation that you really are watching some, you know, you really are like, well, I said, I was going to do it. Now I'm going to do it. And we send around readings to each other and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. it's very nice. It's like a Um,
1: book club a little bit.
2: It is like a book club, uh, but it's for long movies. For long movies. Yeah.
1: Well, what was it? What yeah. was the experience uh, like watching Shoah in that form?
2: It was, it was interesting. I mean, I think part of, you know, we're I guess defining like what our, it Shoah came up, sort of randomly. That I think a number of people, um, mentioned that they were watching it, and then we all just decided to get together. And I think some people might have. I think some people joined on cause they happened to be watching it with, uh, this free time. Um, but we sort of decided that with each movie, it would be a work of like great importance, but also something that really had this sort of, what am I, what am I, like everyone watched Showa, you know, mm-hmm. like in when mm-hmm. it came out, like it was broadcast on POV. Um, it played, um, you know, on television, like all around the world. Um, I believe, uh, Vaclav Havel saw it because it was played in prison, Um, you know, that it really was this uh, sort of moment of reckoning with the history that was a a real cultural touchstone for a lot of people. And I think Eyes on the Prize is a similar thing where it's a a really sweeping historical document that also was something that like when it happened, it was a communal experience, a broadcast experience um, that was, you know, national, international um, in the case of Shoah. So that's like an interesting kind of context, I guess, for it. Um, yeah. In in the sense that now, you know, there's nothing, no communal experiences other than maybe watching the president's press briefings at 530 every day. I mean, that's that's one interesting thing to think about, like, while we're watching it. And also, I mean, a show is obviously, like, incredibly powerful film and... um one that, you know, I've seen a lot of the other movies that he made from the same footage. I don't know, you know, it's just like one of those things I just never watched it. I don't think it's been on streaming. Anyway, uh incredible movie and like an incredible experience to watch it and also like uh something to really dig into. It's
1: it's yeah, just kind of tapping into tapping into a past communal Experience in a way. I mean that. I, I guess that was even even just in like in New York. I mean that, that was it was almost a, a, a movie that everyone would would, would make their own. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a cultural of, event in in a, in, a, in a larger sense. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, and I I mean I also it's something it's something that's almost an undeniable experience to watch it now. It's like it's it's somehow it cuts through everything. It's even bigger than. All of us, even you know, in in a way. Um, so it's something that has that. I I I happen to have watched two things in a row, uh, which were about a uh, nuclear holocaust, and I don't know if that was <laughs> related to somehow. Oh, looking looking was at one
2: of them Chernobyl. What's that? Was one of them Chernobyl? No,
1: ne- neither. No. Uh, first, I watched Fail Safe, um, mm. and then I watched the kind of sequel to Fail Safe, um, the day after. Um, which I had this old VHS of, so we watched it. Um, I, I mean, yeah, that was. It was almost like the could be worse a double bill um, f- for, for right now.
2: Uh, yeah, I also watched that show Chernobyl, and I, I mean, obviously, so much of that is about incompetence mm-hmm. and um, you know failure to act and all these things that uh, you know you can't help but draw some parallels.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, with with yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting between failsafe and, and the day after, failsafe putting you know this deep trust into the kind of beneficent wise president that Henry Fonda plays, who you know when you when you watch it you're like, okay, I I guess I theoretically see why the decision is made that you'd have to sacrifice New York to show your bona fides to um the per- Soviet premier. I, but that decision happens very quickly, um, and it's also there's a, such a thick just miasma of paranoia that is just taken for granted um, about the the kind of you know d- double crossing or, or or just various forms of duplicity that the enemy might uh, go that are just to just kind of conspiratorial depths uh, that, you know. Uh, it's, it's kind of remarkable to, to watch that. And then the day after just, yeah, just seeing mass suffering. I, I, I don't know why somehow that felt like something I, I felt drawn to watching now, but uh, yeah.
3: It's funny. Cause I actually, the first thing I could was able to actually watch because of a few days I, there was nothing I could watch besides the news. And I, I would even try to watch like a TV show or whatever. And I just could not. But then the very first thing I was able to really watch was I, I watched Humphrey Jennings' Listen to Britain. Oh, wow. And it was the same thing where I was drawn to it because I was just thinking about, you know, London under the under the Blitz and that, that whole moment. And it's it's like it's a favorite film of mine. And I have to say the emotional release I had watching that film, I mean... I'll be quite honest i feel like maybe i i had one of my going into shock moments when i was watching the movie but it was all also because it was such an emotional release to see this film that's all about isolation and fear and not knowing what the future will be not knowing who will live and who will die but yet at the same time having to have a kind of sense of community and a sense of um we're in this together and yeah, it was incredible. And it always it reminds me of the fact that, like, journalists say that when that film was showed in theaters during the war, that people wept in the theater. Like, people wept in the theater when that movie would play. And I totally can see, I understand it. It's just, like, it's incredible that there's a work of propaganda that was made not to, like, instill fear or to make people proud, but to actually say to accept that people's sorrow is real you know and that their fear and their grief is real it's an incredible film
1: yeah that's the last thing that seems at all comparable is 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 the, the experience of of, of, uh, of of wartime in some way and and that um, but yeah that's definitely something that I, I do feel a certain hunger for just yeah I mean also with all the images that we're surrounded with and the experiences that we have access to I can still feel a little insulated from the reality of you know, Thousands of people piling up dead in, 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 in just, you know, within six miles of me. Um, well, it's also
3: interesting how little, how few images we were giving of it, given of that in the news. They've been extremely sparing with images, maybe because, you know, why do you want to put cameras into that situation anyway? But still, there's a, I feel like the lack of a kind of image of the front line that we would have in a war uh, is is i don't know i think about this a lot i'm not saying we should have it but i'm saying it's interesting that we don't we don't have a visual of it that in the collective imagination in the same way
1: but uh, listen to britain yeah i mean that's thing. i actually had not th- thought of thought of that and now i really i got kind of i know i have it somewhere in the house or oh, is it online as well that,
2: there's or? a good vimeo online if you look for it someone put up oh, a- okay i was gonna say i up the other day that I saw that it was streaming and I uh, put it on my list to watch soon. Oh,
1: okay.
3: Nelly and I were just saying how, when we were trying to think about what we've been watching since COVID hit, uh, it makes me also realize how much time we actually spent not watching stuff, but we, you know, a lot of our time, especially the first week or so was spent doing the cinema worker solidarity fund, which was our initial response to the whole, the whole thing. Um, so you know, light industries operations, for example, m- me myself and Thomas essentially just became that for like you know a couple weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean, you yeah you you guys were very quick out of the gate, which is great to to get this organized. Uh, supporting some of the people who were most immediately hit um, by the crisis, the shuttering of of theaters, um, pe- people who work at the theaters.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, you know, everything we've been talking about, about this sort of being stuck in our homes and this happening all around us. I mean, I, I know I was very happy to have something that made me feel useful and it did, uh, getting it going and, um, you know, being in touch with, you know, several hundred workers and also just sort of hearing what each cinema is doing and, you know, uh, the sort of level of, uh, Panic in the voices of our colleagues was, uh, you know, very sobering in those first weeks. Um, but yeah, it, it did feel good to be able to at least offer some relief to people um, when I mean, it's still like impossible to sign up for unemployment. So it's uh, hopefully it helps.
3: I mean, cause the, in the end, it's not movies that we're really going to miss. It's the, it's the spaces, it's the places for the movies that we're going to be missing, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I also just found the, the fund's effort of mobilizing people to be pretty inspiring, too, because I think one immediate thing that you feel, I mean, quite apart from, you know, uh, losing employment is, is also just feeling totally isolated and, 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 and alone. Um, and, and and that the whole conditions, all the conditions of this crisis kind of all militate towards making you feel that more and more and more. So I, I just found what, what you did to be really, uh, just a really great.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is, it's very difficult um, as people who like, you know, live in New York in order because they like going out, um, like being in these places and with people. And, you know, I feel like so much of the world has been trending towards people not liking to be, uh, go to movies or, you know, people like to get uh, their food delivered. And there is this, has been this move towards isolation. I feel like even in New York City in recent years that, In some ways, there's obviously a fear that this crisis is going to mean that these places are going to close for good. It's going to be like the last nail in the coffin. Um, But also, I feel like everyone is sort of realizing what, how special it is to live in a place like New York. I mean, uh, certainly people have realized how special the parks are, um, given how full they've been. But um, it's... Hopefully there'll be a big resurgence and, you know, all of these theaters will be able to be staff and um, be able to welcome audiences back in relatively soon. And we'll be able to sort of regain that culture and and hopefully, hopefully, you know, stronger than ever uh, with a renewed, you know, excitement for all that New York has to offer
1: yeah well that seems like an excellent place to finish so we'll we'll uh we'll end it there um uh, thank you so much ed and Ellie.
3: thanks dave thanks
1: you've been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg ing you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by film at lincoln center since 1962, Film Comment has featured in depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.
0: Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.